You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. Much better response than the 9 o'clock. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Connor Woods. I'm our student and media associate here at Gospel Collective Church. I have the privilege to dive into God's Word with you this morning, but I have the added benefit of doing so on a beautifully decorated stage um, for the Christmas season. So I want to give a quick shout out to um, the women that made this all happen. Kendra Rumford, Lauren Pruden, Elizabeth Goodrich, Jessica Colster, and Olivia Colster. Thank you. If you see them, make sure to tell them thank you. If you got your Bibles, I encourage you to grab those and flip to Joshua chapter 1. Last week we started our Christmas series titled The Women of Advent. We derived that title from Matthew's account of Jesus' genealogy, which you might be familiar with. In that genealogy, there are five women who are mentioned. And like we talked about last week, this is pretty abnormal. It was not typical Jewish practice to include women in a genealogy, because in that particular time, they were not seen as true heirs of property. Now, Why would Matthew do this? It seems kind of bewildering to add women, one, but two, to add Gentile women, so non-Jewish women. Again, this adds a layer of complexity. And then we go one layer deeper, Matthew adds some Gentile women with some, you know, at best, less than perfect lives, and at worst, lives that were deserving of death because of their choices. Now, I'm not sure what your genealogy is like, what your family tree is like. I've been told, and I take this with a grain of salt, that in my family tree, Daniel Boone is like my eighth great uncle. But I feel like everybody who lives in Kentucky or is like from Kentucky is also related to Daniel Boone, so I'm not really sure about that. But it's really interesting, you know, family trees and genealogies, it seems like we only want to pass down the notable names, right? the family members that are of good report in our kind of suspect family. We, well, we don't talk about them much. So why? Why does Matthew do this? He goes out of his way. Like he did not, no one forced him to do this. So what, why do we see this in Matthew chapter one? Well, you ask a very good question. And so Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the genealogy of Jesus, or if you missed last week, let's briefly look at the genealogy of Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We looked at Tamar last week. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishon, and Nishon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, which we'll look at today, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, we'll look at Ruth next week, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Uriah course, was Bathsheba. We'll look at her in a couple weeks. Skipping down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom 
Jesus was born, he was called Christ. We'll finish our series looking at Mary. But today we look at Rahab. And to understand the significance of Rahab's story, we've got to cover some brief context. And as Eric has called me a couple times a Bible nerd, I'm excited to journey with you through what God is up to at this point in Israel's history. And so for that, we're going to look at Joshua chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, it says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand and to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Moses, the fearless, faithful leader of Israel, the one that through God's power liberated his people from Egypt is dead. Fear strikes through God's people. Who would be the one to take his place? Would the Israelites indeed enter into the promised land, the one that they just spent the past 40 years wandering because of their disobedience to take it the first time? Will they take the promised land without their faithful leader Moses? God appoints Joshua, who is a military leader, who is Moses' right-hand man. Now notice that God has already promised the Israelites victory. He's already given the land to them, but he requires that they take, out, take a step out in faithfulness to take the land. You know, God's making good on his promise here that he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17, this is verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the moment that Israel has been waiting for. Everything promised to them from ages ago, from the very beginning, it's right there for their possession. And Rahab, as we'll see, is caught right in the crosshairs. This is Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, 
and lodged there. So Joshua, being a military man, and in his military expertise, has sent two spies into the land to kind of get an idea of what they're dealing with. Now, this is a sharp contrast. If you remember back from Numbers 13, when Moses sent not two, but 12. And so Joshua thinks, I guess, fewer cooks in the kitchen, the better. Jericho, as we understand it, is one of the oldest known fortified cities in the Near East. The name Jericho actually sounds like the Hebrew word for moon, leading scholars to believe that this was a place of moon god worship. And if that is true, then the overthrowing of Jericho would be God's declaration of victory over the false Canaanite gods. This is mission critical for Israel. They cannot, cannot fail. God has given them the land, yes, but they must take it in faith. So the spies, they enter into Jericho, and they lodge at a prostitute's house. And this is where we're introduced to Rahab. Rahab's a pagan prostitute in the land that God is about to destroy. Every reader of this text, especially Jewish, but including us, would assume, yeah, this pagan prostitute's also going to get swept away in the destruction of the city. And if you pay close attention to the characters in the Jericho story, almost every one of them performs in a way that is the exact opposite of kind of what we expect. Now, concerning why the spies landed at Rahab's house, they weren't seeking out prostitution. The text doesn't allude to that. People believe that Rahab's house was more of an inn, so this would be a pretty logical place for them to stay. Nevertheless, Rahab the prostitute has just encountered two Israelite spies who are checking out the city. They're going to go back and report what they see to Joshua. Verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Now, I'm not a spy, but it seems like they're probably the worst spies I think I've ever seen. They get caught day one. It's not a great look for them. And with Israel's failure to take the promised land in the background, it seems like Israel is doomed yet again to repeat the task. Picking up in verse 3. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof, and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on their way out to the Jordan, as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. This story just has so many twists. It's so interesting. Everything we expect 
seems like the opposite happens. We expect Rahab, the prostitute, living in Jericho, to turn over the spies. She doesn't. In this act of civil disobedience and sin through her lying, she sends the men of the city on a wild goose chase. It works. Now, why would Rahab choose to lie? Why would she choose to lie? Why does God choose to continue his purposes through sin, through a lie? Well, the text doesn't really give us that answer. It's certainly not prescriptive. It's not telling us as the readers, hey, go ahead and lie whenever it's to your benefit. It's simply descriptive. It's showing us what Rahab did. Lying was normal for Rahab as lying is normal for you and I. Either choice she could have made to either turn the spies in or to lie she would be equally guilty of sin. However, in the verses that follow, we will see that this lie shows a lot more than what was just normal behavior for Rahab. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Yet again, surprised by the text. Rahab has heard of Yahweh, has heard of the God of the Israelites. And she even recognizes him as the one true God, the God of the heavens and the earth. In fact, the whole city has heard of what God has done. And their hearts have melted because of these stories that they've heard. Stories of how God has, deals seriously with sin and disobedience to his commands and the mistreatment of his people. David Jackson, Jackman, excuse me, in a commentary on Joshua says this, The truth of who God is and what he has done for his people has already penetrated Jericho. And when the word of God gets into enemy territory, only two reactions are possible. Either there is faith in the greatness of the Lord and a casting of oneself entirely on his mercy, that's what we'll see in verses 12 and 13, or there is fear, which determines to resist God's supremacy, challenge his will, and continue to fight against his purposes. Rahab's lie, which kept the spies safe, is indicative that she is no longer the pagan prostitute that we have framed her to be. Although it's not immediately apparent, what we'll see in chapter 6 is that the text alludes to a genuine spiritual conversion. Verse 12 of chapter 2. 
is Rahab. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab strikes a deal with these spies. Their safety and secrecy were Rahab's protection along with all her household. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your fathers and your mothers, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, notice, nerd out with me for a second, the color of the cord. Not only would this have just stood out from the color of the wall, but we'd be remiss to overlook the parallel to the Passover. This is Exodus chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. This is the Lord's instructions to the Israelites. He says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the, in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. The crimson stain of blood and the scarlet cord. Rahab's house will be passed over and all her household will be protected from the coming destruction. So the spies, they return to Joshua. They tell them, tell him of what they've learned. And Israel now prepares for their conquest. You may be familiar with the famous Sunday school story. They march around the city. They got the trumpets with them. And we see this in Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 16. It says, At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Israel's ready to enter the promised land. In an act of faith, they shout. We see that the walls crumble. 
God has proven yet again his faithfulness. And Israel begins their siege. But Joshua wastes no time. He is quick to honor the commitment to Rahab. And the spies are instructed to go get her. Verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and all her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So three things that we see from Rahab's story. First one is that God's forgiveness and saving grace is active even in the darkest circumstances and environments. Israel was instructed to destroy the entire city and everything and everyone in it. But Rahab, through her faith in Yahweh, was saved. And arguably one of the darkest, most wicked places on earth. It's at this time and at this place that God's grace shines through. And those rays of grace fell upon one of the most unlikely characters, a prostitute. Now, I don't know what situation you're walking through. I don't know what you, where you've been or what you've done. I don't know what your family situation is like. But if God's forgiveness and grace can reach a pagan prostitute, then it surely can reach you. And it does. Rather than God continuing to wipe out her along with the rest of the city, which they deserved, she was saved. The writer of Hebrews says this, in chapter 11, verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. Get this, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. God honors even the simplest form of faith. The faith to cry out and see walls crumble. And the faith to believe that he is who he says he is. His forgiveness and his grace are always active. Even when we don't see it, even when we might not believe it. And especially in the darkest circumstances and environments. Number two, there is no boundary line that the gospel cannot cross. The boundary between God's people 
and the Canaanites did not run along ethnic lines. This passage and others gets accused of genocide or ethnic cleansing. That's not what's going on here. We have to remember that the whole earth is the Lord's, and he can choose whatever he wants to do with any part of it. And two, we see it's not an ethnic problem. It's an allegiance problem. The boundary line between God's people and the Canaanites did not run along ethnic lines, but in terms of allegiance to God. Therefore, there's no sin, there's no family history, there is no choice that you have made or circumstance you may find yourself in that is too big a barrier, that is too big a boundary for God's love and forgiveness through the gospel. If God desires, and he does and did, to save a pagan, moon god-worshipping prostitute, how much more does he want to save you? How much more does he love you? It's through Rahab's faith that we see the Savior of the world, Jesus the Christ, enter our earthly domain. And just as God sought to save Rahab, we see Christ's purpose to save in John 3.17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might be, the order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is not unlike his heavenly Father that we see instructing the Israelites. These are not two completely different characters. We see the same compassion, the same love, the same grace, the same mercy in Jesus that we do in the Father. But I think we can get wrapped up in the destruction part that we overlook the significance of the grace part, of the mercy. God's mercy to Rahab's story is not a footnote, but a foreshadowing of his son, in whom we have the forgiveness of sins, because he crossed the boundary line from heaven to earth. You ever thought about that? That Jesus took the initiative, that Jesus moved toward us and continues to move toward us. He came to earth crossing into our space, which is, if we're honest, not that great. Full of disease and pain and suffering and heartache. Jesus willingly stepped into our world to save us. So it's utterly foolish of us to think that there's some part of us that he can't step into, that there's some mess or some sin or some past or some family drama that Jesus can't step into because, friends, he's already stepped into it. He's already been here. He's already conquered it. And he has graciously given us the way for us to have victory over sin and Satan and death. And it's through allegiance to him and to him alone. There is no boundary line the gospel cannot cross because Jesus has already crossed it.
number three. God's story of redemption is carried on through, and I would say especially, sinners. So we have this tendency, no matter what our background is, if we grew up in church, if we didn't grow up in church, we have this tendency to believe that our sin or our past or maybe some family drama somehow disqualifies us from being used by God or being saved by God. But what this text shows us is the contrary, the exact opposite. I mean, it cannot get away from calling Rahab a prostitute. Like, if you were Rahab and you were reading this, you'd be like, all right, enough already. They know I'm a prostitute. Why do you got to keep bringing it up? But the point is not to shame her. The point is not to just keep bringing up her past. It's pointing us to a greater reality, which is, this is exactly who Jesus wants in his lineage. This is exactly who Jesus wants in his family. Christ's whole earthly ministry was pulling people from the fringes and the margins of society into his kingdom. That was his whole business. Why? Why does he choose to do this? No one's forcing God to save Rahab. No one, no one forced Jesus to address the vulnerable and the marginalized. Why? Why does God do this? It's because he has made every person in his image. And he genuinely desires that all, all are to be saved. It's because God's grace and love, it's magnified all the more because of our sinful past. You think of people with really powerful, kind of God flipped my world upside down type testimonies. Rahab is one of them. You think of those stories, and rather than, you know, maybe you think your story is boring. That's kind of where I land. Or maybe you think your story disqualifies you. The point is not any of those things, but rather to encourage you and show you that God is constantly drawing people in to love them, to assure them that he sees them and hears them, and to send them out to make that same message known, to make his name glorified among the earth. He's pulling in people from every background, regardless of their past, because he wants to know them. Like God genuinely desires to know you, and he also desires that you know him. He wants to display his followers, as his prized possession and then mobilize them and their witness to continue in the unfolding story of redemption. If you are in Christ, you, we are caught up in this story, in this drama. Like it doesn't, it doesn't end in Revelation. It didn't end with the first century church. It has continued to this day with you and I, and if you are not in Christ, the invitation is on the table to be part of this story by pledging your allegiance to Christ because it's that 
who we live for. We live for Jesus. We follow and obey Jesus as our Savior. James 2, verse 24 and 25. says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Just like the Israelites had to step out in faith to take the promised land, in effect proving their trust in God, Rahab, in an act of the same faith, hid the spies, proving that she believed in Yahweh. That she truly wanted to dedicate her life and her family's life to the one true God. I love that Joshua chapter 6 closes. The Rahab story ends this way. It says, but Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. It shows us that it wasn't some kind of spur of the moment decision that Rahab made. She had heard the story. And she had made her decision. She was not wavering from that. She was brought in, forever grafted into God's family. His chosen people. And the same is offered for all of us today. It's true for us who are in Christ and it is offered for for those of us who are not in Christ. When we seek Jesus, when we place our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Repent from our sinful ways and follow Him as our new King. We are forever brought into His family. So this Advent season, as we reflect on Christ's first arrival as a baby and look to His second arrival, Let us anchor our praise and our joy and our hope and our love. Let us root that in the history, the rich, beautiful, unfolding history of God rescuing and redeeming undeserving outcast sinners like us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Yahweh, the one who sees us, the one who hears us, we thank you for your grace and mercy shown to Rahab and her faithfulness, which continued your purposes. We thank you for your faithfulness to us when we have been unfaithful to you. As we wait with eager anticipation for the second coming of your son, we now celebrate his first humble arrival. Father, we aim to please you because we believe that you are good and that you are for us. We praise you, Father, for your providence. We praise Christ the Son for his sacrifice. We praise the Spirit for his guidance. Father, 
anchor our hearts in thanksgiving this Advent season. Help us slow down and recognize the gift that was your son. We pray in his holy name, which is Jesus. Amen.